0: So last Sunday, I introduced you to the, uh, the New Testament letter titled Titus, <laughs> titled Titus. This Sunday, we'll begin to take a closer look at the very first part of Titus, or, or what is referred to as the greeting or salutation of the letter. I titled the, the sermon, it'll be a two-parter, by the way, I titled it a Grand Greeting, I might change the title, I think I'm going to change it, Thomas, to A Striking Salutation. A Striking Salutation. Do you like that better? It's a little more catchy. Uh, Only because striking is really what I'm going for. Grand, striking is a synonym of grand, but the idea is it it stands out from the rest. It's striking. It it attracts attention by reason of being unusual. That's what I'm going for. And that's basically what we have here. It's... uh, It is unusual because, and we'll get into it, but it's unlike other salutations or greetings, and it does have a punch to it. Uh, It's different from the other ones that Paul provides in his letters, with the exception of Romans and Galatians. Also there, it's a little bit uh, expanded, uh, salutation or greeting. So let me just jump in, because that's what we need to do. Titus 1, 1, through 4 is that section of the letter the salutation the greeting and it is a grand greeting you know kind of like a, a you walk into a a grand entrance of a home you know most entrances are pretty common and normal but there's something special when you walk in and go whoa this is a grand entrance right something unique something special it catches your attention that's the case with this or should be the case as you read this section or this salutation yeah ready Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So, in verse 1, Paul, as you can see, if you're looking there at the Word of God, your copy, Paul identifies himself as first a servant of, or more literally, a slave of, because that's the word. A slave of God. Or to put it another way, Paul is basically stating that God is his master. God is his master. So to paraphrase, it is the one and only God, Paul is saying, it is the one and only God whom I belong to, live for, and am serving. And he might have, he's used this phrase before, so it's not unique to this particular salutation in the sense of being a servant of God or the Lord Jesus Christ, or a slave of, or a bondservant of. But it might be important here as we get through the letter because there are Judaizers that are uh, being disruptive in the church, Jewish people who are holding on to the Old Testament, Mosaic law, causing problems. And so it's Paul's way of saying, I indeed serve this God that you say you serve as well, but you want to keep disrupting his work. I indeed am his slave and he is my master, and I am living and serving him. It's a a way of communicating that in a nutshell. Also, he says, beyond being a servant of God, he identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Also, he has done that in other letters or salutations, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and so on. So what does that mean? He is an official ambassador of the Lord. So again, to paraphrase, Paul is saying in a sense, I have been sent by the Lord Jesus himself, to speak on his behalf with his authority. I have been sent forth by Christ as his authoritative messenger is a way to describe this phrase, okay? So as Paul speaks, or as Paul writes scripture, he's writing on behalf of Christ with Christ's authority. So to hear Paul as we hear him here is to hear Christ. These self-descriptions as one Commentator says the beginning of his letters, and if you read through Paul's letters, you'll see them, they serve basically to establish his authority and his right to speak. What gives you the right to speak, Paul? Why should I listen to you? I am a slave of God, and I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what gives me the right and the authority to speak and hold you responsible, Christian, to listen. Okay? With me so far? However, Paul doesn't include these self-descriptions to establish his authority to Titus, right? And we talked about this last week, but Titus, Titus knows him. Titus was his faithful and trusted coworker. He's not looking to try to, to establish himself with Titus. Rather, he does it in the letter to establish his authority with the fledgling churches on the island of Crete, where Titus was left by Paul to instruct and strengthen those very churches. Okay. So, as I told you, this acts as uh, a stamp of approval, if you will, for Titus's sake, uh, as Titus has been left there to put things in order, to appoint elders and leaders in these various churches, to give them biblical instruction about their conduct, and how they are to live out the Christian life and organize the uh, communities of believers there, he will have behind him, Titus will have behind him, the Apostle Paul and this letter, which states what Titus is to be doing, and that's why Paul begins with, and this is coming from me, Paul, a slave of God, a servant of God, and an official representative of the Lord himself. And Titus is my representative to you, my delegated representative to you. He carries with him my weight, and I carry with me the weight of Christ. Does that make sense to you? So, all right. So, you know, Titus can step in and begin to do what he needs to do. And, as I said before, there's challenges in Crete with the churches there, as we'll get to, as we look at the letter. He knows that he's going to be challenged. There's some stuff going on there, so this will help to that end, to give uh, the Titus the credibility that he needs, as he says, deals with some difficult situations. Now, self-descriptions like these, as I've already said, can be found in the greetings of Paul's other New Testament letters as well, as you look at the other letters. With the exception of Thessalonians, he doesn't... Have any self-description, he just says Paul, he just identifies himself as Paul. But in the other letters, he, he does this as well. But what makes this greeting unique is Paul doesn't end with these phrases and then move on to address the reader, or the primary reader of the letter, which was Titus. In other words, he doesn't say, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse four, to Titus, my true child in common faith. He could have done that, and that is typical of what he does. After a short self-description, or identify himself as the writer, he then addresses the primary reader or readers, whether it be to churches or, in this case, to the individual Titus. Instead, after this self-description, this is what makes this striking, he expands, he goes on with this long sentence here, at the end of verse 1, verse 2, and verse 3, before identifying the reader. So, beyond that, these, this expansion, what we see here is really a number of theologically rich statements poured into this, this section right here. And, and that's what we're going to begin to focus on this morning, these theologically rich statements that he has added to this salutation, which makes it striking, which makes it grand. You with me? All right, but why does he include them? Why include them here? Well, I don't, you know, on one level, he includes these statements that we're going to look at because they help set the stage for the content and the teaching that will follow in the main body of the letter. It is like a grand entrance. He's opening the door, and you go, wow, this is intense. This is striking. Yeah, and what's going to follow is something. It's what's going to follow. You should, it gives you an expectation of what will follow, right? Because it'd be weird if you came in and there was a grand entrance of a home and then you, and then you got into the rest of the home and it was a dump. That would be weird, right? But you would, you, it sets the expectation for what's coming. That's what he does here. Beyond that, Paul loves the gospel. He loves Jesus Christ. He loves the Lord. And I think sometimes he just breaks out. You know, he can't, it's like he's just writing And he's just like, man, here it goes, you know. Yes, I'm an apostle, and this is why I'm doing what I'm doing, and and that's what we have here. He's so in love with the Lord, he can't help himself. Beyond that, the Holy Spirit is guiding and directing this. So it's here for us as well, for the body, for the church, on purpose. All right. Titus 1.1. So that's all we're going to look at today. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, self descriptions. Now he expands. And these are the theologically rich statements. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That verse and that expanded statement, phrasing, could be described really then as Paul's mission statement. Paul's mission statement. I serve God, I am an apostle for this reason, for the sake of, for the purpose of, and then he states it, what does he say? For the sake of what? Talk back to me. The faith of God's elect. Another translation of that, the New American Standard Bible translates it, for the faith of those chosen of God. For the faith of those chosen of God. Paul, writing to Timothy, Really, at the end of his end of Paul's life, this is shortly before he will be executed. He's in prison for the second time in Rome. This will be the last time because he'll be executed sometime after that. This is really his final letter. He writes this letter to his son in the faith, Timothy, like Titus, a faithful co-worker in the Lord, laboring uh, with Paul, had been laboring with Paul for the mission and the gospel. He writes this in 2 Timothy 2, 8-10. He says something similar or related to this for the sake of the faith of the elect. He says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. I mean, obviously, because it's still going forth through him, through his ministry. He's still making Christ known. His co workers are still making Christ known. You may lock me up, but you can't lock up the gospel. It still goes forth. I'm still being used to spread the good news. And he takes hope in that and joy, even while he's chained. But the word of God is not bound. Verse 10, this is why I wanted to show you. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. I endure everything for their sake, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole discussion of election per se or that doctrine. I've discussed that before with you. It's an important one, a rich one. I have recommended to you before a book called Chosen by God. I will recommend it to you again by R.C. Sproul, Chosen by God, to further your understanding of this glorious truth, that truth concerning election and God's choice of uh, people for himself. But uh, here, I just want you to see, Paul is doing what he does for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for all those that have been chosen and predestined by God to come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Second Timothy's, listen, I'm just, it's what drove him, it's what kept him going. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, that all that God has predetermined would come to faith will come to faith, or that I will be used for to that end. And certainly we know that while God does predetermine who will come to faith, he uses means. He uses the preaching of the gospel through his people so that the elect of God, when he hears it or she hears it, and the Spirit of God works in them and on them, they respond with repentance and faith and are saved. Now, this knowledge, this doctrine, gave Paul really confidence to do what he did. To to go out and to make the sacrifices that he made, knowing that God had a select group of people that he would save the process of the preaching of the gospel message, which he had called Paul specifically to. And this gospel message, as we know, went not only out to Jews, but now also to all nations, to the Gentiles. And Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. This was God's purpose. He, before the foundation of the world, chose a people to redeem, to put his saving love on, to, to extend his mercy and saving grace to. This is his purpose. This is God's purpose. And so Paul has aligned himself with God's purposes. Have you? Have you aligned yourself with God's purposes? Let me ask you this do you think about the elect? And in 2 Timothy, remember, Paul there is saying, I do what I do for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation. There are those that are out there who still have not named Christ as Jesus and Lord, still have not come to saving faith, but they will. And Paul knew that to be the case because God had said so, and God has predetermined to save a segment of fallen humanity for his purposes and glory. Do you think about that? Does that come into your mind throughout your, your daily experience and walk? There are, and by the way, if you're here and you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're following him, then you are the elect, okay? But there's still a group out there that have not yet come to saving faith and that's the group you and I are to be reaching. Now, guess what? We don't know who they are, right? We don't know who the elect are, but we know they're out there, right? So, we preach and proclaim to anyone who will listen, but we know with certainty that all those God has chosen will, through this means, come to saving faith. So, it gives us great hope. It gives us great confidence. It gives us direction. It gives us purpose. You know, you see this and if you're in, if you have your Bible open, you could turn to Acts 13. You see this doctrine of election. Just want to spend a little, just a quick few minutes. 13, Acts 13. Paul is in Antioch, and in verse 47 of chapter 13 of Acts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you're trying to find it, New Testament. Says, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you. Paul's is talking, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He's preaching the gospel there. He's proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here it is. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many who were appointed to eternal life believed. As many who had been chosen by God before the foundations of the world believed. And Paul knew. Paul knew God had a group of people and he was called to go out, proclaim the gospel to all, knowing with certainty God would, through that, bring his own to himself, to saving faith. Gave Paul great confidence. It also put him in line with God's purposes. You see this as well in Acts 18. Just turn to the right. Acts 18. Paul's in Corinth. Corinth. Paul's having some trouble, having some pushback, having some problems as he proclaims the gospel. And then in verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking the gospel and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people." He's talking about those who have yet placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but they have been sovereignly chosen by God to be his people. They will become his people as Paul and his companions proclaim the gospel and make Jesus known, hear it, are granted faith and repentance by the work of the Spirit, and then receive it and become born again in Christ. One writer says, because we know that God has many elect who will certainly come to faith when they hear the gospel, it should encourage us to evangelize. It should encourage us to evangelize. So think through this just for a moment. I don't know who the elect are. I know once they come to Christ, then I can confidently say, you are the elect of God. You are the chosen one of God. God has sovereignly sent his, set his love on you, predetermined to save you and has worked out all the circumstances to bring you to that place of repentance and faith, granting you his spirit, bringing about regeneration in your heart. Okay, I can say that. Meanwhile, if you haven't come to faith yet, I don't know. You you may be the elect, you may not. I don't know. And it's not my place to know. But what I do know is they're out there. (laughs) I'm serious. I mean, and I mean that in the most wonderful and incredible way. There are those who have not yet named Christ, called upon him in faith, that will. But they need to hear the gospel. That's the means that God has appointed. Where will they hear the gospel from? Where will they hear the good news of Jesus Christ? Where? I would assume, yes, I'm thanking you, yeah, because... That's kind of the idea. That's If you want to align yourself with God's purposes, if you want, I just want to know what to do with my life. I want, to, I, want to, I want to do something great. You want to do something great? What could be greater than God's purposes? What could be greater? And you can do this and should do this in any circumstance of life. So in other words, if you work at a gas station, You can serve the great purposes of God because there's people there. And there may be, you don't know, but there may be, we know they're out there, the elect of God waiting to hear the gospel and then be drawn to Christ by his sovereign love and receive him as Savior. Huh? You probably have family And you may even think there's no way some of these, there's no way these could be the elect of God. There's just no way. And yet you know, you know, if you understand doctrine, you know, no one is outside the grace of God, his power to save. When he determines something, it will happen, but he uses means. Beloved, align yourself with the purposes of God. That's what Paul did. And once you've done that, then the doors are thrown open. There's no stopping you. You're living for something so big, so grand. And when you think about what it is, the elect of God, the chosen people of God, who will eternally reign with Christ, this is a big deal. There is no bigger deal. Is there? Is there any bigger deal than that? I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may come to faith, Paul says. And remember in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul says to the church there, and by extension to us as well, imitate me. Imitate Paul, not me, Jeremy. Imitate Paul, and he goes on in the letter, says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Think this through with me. In John 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Christ came to secure the salvation of the elect. He came for that purpose. You want to align yourself with God? You want to align yourself with Christ? Then you endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they might come to saving faith. Hey, you might have to endure being embarrassed a little bit, I guess, or laughed at or mocked because you make Christ known, not just by your deeds, but by your words you make him known. huh? I mean, when Paul was talking about enduring all things, it's beatings and imprisonment. And, and honestly, guys, you probably won't have to endure that here in the States. Yeah? Probably not. But you might have to endure some junk. You might have to endure to, you know, those nasty licks <laughs> or, you know, the family kind of turning you away. But you look to this great purpose and that drives you and moves you. I just want you to think how often do you even think about these things? It consumed Paul, it occupied his mind. And you don't have to become Paul, he had a specific task. You're not going to become an apostle. There are no more, all right? He had a specific task to make the gospel known, to take it out in its initial stage to the Gentiles, which he did. So we're not talking about you quitting your job and going to some country. That's not the idea. The idea is right where you are, where God has you, providentially, sovereignly, make Christ known, knowing that that is the means that God is using to gather his chosen to himself. You want to have purpose in this life? Real purpose? Lasting purpose? Live as Paul lived. Now, beloved, Paul doesn't end there or at that. And that's really what I want you to see this morning. For the sake of the faith of the elect, or that is to say that the elect may hear the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him as their Savior, he doesn't end there. But he also says, and this can't be missed, he also says, look back at the text, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and this is, that's not just the mission, it's not just that, this is the full mission, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Let me give you another translation of that last phrase. The NIV puts it this way, 84, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to Godliness. Another translation puts that last phrase this way, and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Another translation puts all of it this way. God sent me, Paul, to help his chosen people believe in Christ. How's that? Through the preaching of the gospel. I have been sent to help them understand the truth that leads to godly living. It's both. It's not one or the other. It's both. That's the mission. That's God's mission. That's God's calling. Not only upon Paul, but beloved upon us as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. One writer says, just as Paul's apostleship was for the faith of God's elect, it is also for the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, hear me. One commentator, as I was reading through and studying, defined the phrase God's elect this way as those chosen from among the masses of humanity to be God's precious children. That is a nice definition. I like it, okay? But I would modify it to say God's elect are those chosen from among the masses of humanity to be God's precious and holy children. Holy holy children. He chooses a people for himself to be precious, for sure, but to be holy, for sure. Holy, beloved, set apart unto him, set apart from sin, elected to be holy and blameless before him, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1. To be godly, you are chosen for this, to be conformed to and reflect your new status as a child of God and no longer as a child of the devil, which is what you were prior to a saving work in your life. Beloved, the point that must not be missed is God has not elected people unto salvation so that they can simply avoid the eternal consequences of their sin and yet continue to live in their sinfulness. Did you hear that? Theologically rich statements and maybe we can just read over real quick, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to spend a little time there. Don't miss it. What's my mission? To call the elect, to lead the elect to Christ by the preaching of the gospel and to teach them the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. It's both. That's the mission. You remember from last week, and why would he even say that? Well, he's going to have to address this very matter as we see through the letter. These are fledgling churches. These are churches that don't, appears that don't yet understand all that it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ or a believer in him. There must be some confusion there. One writer says the Christians were adversely influenced probably by the prevailing low moral standards in Crete. Perhaps the gospel, of the grace of God, had been misinterpreted to mean that salvation was unrelated to daily conduct. And that is could be said of Christians today, many. Like, well, yeah, okay, I get it. I'm chosen of God, okay? And so I've received him, and glory be to God. And then they just go on doing everything they did before. What are you talking about? You have, think about why he chose you. See what the scriptures say. Not just to save you from the wrath that is coming, indeed that, but to save you unto himself. To save you from sin in its entirety. To make you a child of God. One writer says this. It's a long quote. But it was so good that I wanted to share it with you. He says this. The sequence of these three significant terms Paul used in this first verse. verse, Faith. Knowledge, godliness. They suggest a pattern of true Christian growth. Saving faith that opens one's eyes to the knowledge of the truth should result in a transformed life characterized by godliness. Is your life characterized by godliness? All too often... In our evangelistic efforts to produce faith, making Christ known and seeing people accept him and receive him, we have neglected the hard work of encouraging the knowledge of the truth. Because the results of our evangelism are easily measured by recording decisions and baptisms, we may become content with our success as reflected by statistical data we may be substituting statistical records for spiritual reality, which is something like reading the recipe instead of eating the meal. The cultivating of the knowledge of the truth is not so easily defined or measured. It is much more disciplined, difficult, and, and undramatic process, which is why I think it is sometimes often neglected. You know, go out, do evangelistic uh, opportunities, make Christ known. Oh, and someone's professing faith. Okay, now, go over here, do it over here. But that's not the mission. The mission is to make him known and then to lead them into godliness, into the knowledge of the truth. You see? That's the mission, Christian. And that's hard work. That is hard work. Just pause for a second. I'm on pause for a second. When we went down to Argentina for some trips down there, they brought us in, as I've said to you before, you probably heard this story as bait because we're Americans. And so it would would get the Argentines to open their doors because they'd be like, why are these Americans here? This is weird. Down in the barrio in Argentina, it must be really important. And they would use the whole thing. So the, the local Argentines from the church, Christians, would say, these people have come from very far, and they have come to speak to you. And will you be willing to listen? Yes. And so they would listen. It, would, it caused a door to be open. And so then we would preach the gospel, and some would appear to receive Christ, profess faith. And I believe some did, for sure. Wonderful. We were there two weeks, and then we left. Right? And so we're like, yeah we're all excited and rightfully so if people did come to faith in christ and only god knows and only time will tell it is a joyful occasion for sure but that's just the beginning right because now the hard work starts where the church comes alongside them begins to minister to them disciple them instruct them and teach them and help them to grow into all that god would want them to be So we always reminded people of that. You know, you you think, wow, but the hard work now is taking place, the really hard work. Tozer so aptly comments, the Christian is strong or weak depending upon how closely he has cultivated the knowledge of God. Paul was anything but an advocate of the once-done automatic school of Christianity. Oh, you're in? Good. Move on. No. That's not the mission. That's not what God has called us to. He devoted his whole life to the art of knowing Christ. Progression in the Christian life is exactly equal to the growing knowledge we gain of the triune God in personal experience. And such experience, and such experience requires a whole life devoted to it and plenty of time spent at the holy task of cultivating God. God can be known satisfactorily only as we devote time to him. That's, do you devote time to him? I mean, time, time. Not five minutes here, five minutes there, or nothing at all except Sunday morning. That's not the mission. That's not not why God has called you or elected you unto himself. It is to know him. It is to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be transformed. It is to become godly. The disciplined study of the knowledge of the truth is necessary to convince our minds and hearts of our fallen human condition, of God's higher purposes and plans for us, and therefore our desperate need to change. This understanding empowered by the Spirit of God will transform us from self-centered and self-controlled to God-centered and God-controlled. In his characteristically pithy manner, this gentleman Havner describes the church as it has ignored the necessity of a progression from faith to knowledge to godliness. They've ignored it. They stopped at faith. Maybe you've stopped at faith. He says, We are challenged these days, but not changed. Right? You come and you hear the sermon, you hear the message, but yes, yeah, challenging. But then nothing transpires after, nothing takes place after that. Convicted, but not converted, we hear, but do not, and thereby we deceive ourselves. I'd say that's a perfect picture of the American church. So this is why we keep coming back to stuff like this. This is why we're doing this particular study this time around. This is why we, we have biblical doctrine, discipleship material that you can engage in if you're willing. We, make, we offer it to you. We make it available. We have a biblical survey that Thomas will take people through so that they might come to the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Why do you think we do this? So you have more facts? No. It's those very facts that lead you to become the man or woman that God elected you to be. That's the church. That, that's what we're called to do. So what's your part in all that? Consider that. You realize that you've been saved by God to, to be transformed and then to lead others into that transformation you think about that? Are you engaged in that? you pray about that? Do you realize that God has saved you so that you might be holy? Are you participating in that? Are you pursuing that? Are your purposes God's purposes? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your church. I thank you for your word. And I pray that you would work in and through us. Father, I do and pray you would bring us to the end of ourselves and that we would flee to the cross and that we would stop resisting the work of the Spirit in our lives, that we would hear him, hear him through the word, come under it and surrender to it, Father, that you would convict us. Sometimes we we have deceived ourselves so much It's hard for us even to hear you. So, Father, I pray that you would do that work that only you can do. You'd break through all of that and reveal to us the things that need to be revealed that we might repent. Father, I fear that, I know for many, and maybe not here, maybe there's some here certainly, but I know in general, many have cut the line at coming to faith. They think that's it, and yet that wasn't Paul's mission. That's not... Your mission, that's not your desire, that's not what you have determined to be so. It's not just coming to faith, it's not just being saved, but then it is growing in the knowledge and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, in understanding the fullness and weight and the richness of the gospel, and having our lives transformed by that. It is a life of saying no to sin. And rooting it out of our lives. That is the Christian life. And saying yes to you and to your righteousness and the work of the Spirit in our lives and becoming more and more like Christ. Not only us becoming more like that, but helping others to that end. That is it. That is the big purpose. You've called the people unto yourself that they might be holy. Paul gave himself to that, and we... Benefactors of that gospel that Paul preached should give ourselves to that as well. Help us to do that, Father. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.